You're listening to Vanguard Radio. Do you smoke cigars? Uh, no. You know, though, after after David uh, David said that they they have these meetings where they all get together and uh, <laughs> smoke cigars, so you know, <laughs> you know, maybe oh, there's, there's always a chance, right? I, I um I spend probably two hundred dollars a month on cigars, at least. Yeah, I spend more than I should. What? I mean, don't they cut your wind down, or you know? I mean, you don't. Inhale I don't them. inhale them. No. Nobody in their right mind inhales a cigar. Was well, it just like the aroma or something, or what? No. What it is is that there's exponentially more nicotine in a cigar than there is a cigarette. So when you suck the smoke into your mouth and hold it and blow it out and puff some more and keep that cycle going. It gives you more of a nicotine high just doing that than if you were to inhale it. Plus, there's a lot more flavor in a cigar than there is a cigarette. Yeah, I really don't like cigarettes. Yeah, I don't smoke cigarettes. There's no way. What about a pipe? I used to smoke a pipe, but the flavor of a cigar is so much more... um, What's the word I'm looking for? Um can't quite put my finger on it. A cigar is like a poor man's tobacco, whereas a cigar is more of a refined taste. Uh-huh. It's like the difference between drinking vodka out of a plastic bottle and drinking one, you know, that's like $50 a bottle. Yeah, well, pipes are economical. I mean, I I, own, I have a pretty good collection of pipes, and um, I don't use them all the time, though, and that's the thing is that... Uh, there's a, a lot less must and fuss where you just pull out a cigar out of the humidor and, and fire it up. You know, uh, what do you camping and manicuring and all that kind of crap? What do you do to? Ke- I I saw uh, you sent me a photo recently of you. Uh, I think it was recent. Uh, Link, uh, Todd, and and what do you? It looks like you're pretty fit. You must work out a lot, huh? Um. Yeah, well, I what I do really is I walk a lot. Okay. I walk at least three times a week, at least five miles each time, and um, you know I do I, I do a few exercises here at the house. I've got twenty five pound barbells, and I'm I'm of the mindset where you do more high reps and low weight, and uh, then you do a lot of I don't, I'm not really into bulking myself up. Yeah. But um, you know, yeah, I, I I go out and I walk a lot. Huh. But I tell you what, I, when I was in high school, I went from 130 to 170 in about a year and a half <laughs> when I turned 18. And then um, I toned off. I went back down to about 150. Then when I went to prison, I went back up to about 170 by just doing push-ups. You know, just... Uh... I don't know if you want to talk about this, Todd. And, you know, because we talked a lot about guns, and uh, and you know, uh, you had to have um, uh, you had to have pretty <laughs> pretty strong nerves to uh, to uh, to do what you have done, uh, <laughs> Todd. <laughs> that that takes mm-hmm. some uh, that takes some real determination. You know, yeah, like, it's you know, uh, D- uh, David was talking about you know. Uh, you know, having your composure about you and looking at the sights and and staying focused. I mean, uh, <laughs> I mean, I well, can't think of a more real world example, right? 
Yeah, I, t- I tell you what, um, I've read um, the, the. I tell you what, I mean, to, in order to make the decision to cross the barrier to do something like that, yeah, you've got to have somewhere behind you some inspiration. Yeah. And although um, being a white nationalist, that's a lot of inspiration. But I wasn't born a bank robber. I wasn't born a racist. I wasn't born, you know, I grew up in a family that, you know, they didn't know anything about white nationalism or Jews or anything like that. It wasn't until I read White Power by Lincoln Rockwell that I, you know, it finally put everything together in a puzzle, took all the pieces of the puzzle and put it together. Then I started reading the writings of Dr. Pierce, and that that was a huge inspiration. But even that wasn't enough to push me over the edge and say, you know what, you need to start robbing the banks that, you know, uh, the government uh, is, is sponsoring. Mm-hmm. It, it was a it was a collection, a series of books, written back in the mid and sixties, uh, early seventies, by a guy whose pen name was Richard Stark. He wrote under another name, uh, <laughs> Donald Westlake, and the uh, the antihero was a guy named Parker. And Parker was a guy who was continually setting up scores for either the um, well, you know, tonight we've mentioned a lot of uh, writers. I'm writing them down because I want to read some of them. Oh, let me tell you Donald what. Donald Westlake and Richard Stark and Lewis Beam. Okay. Well, right. Donald, Richard Stark and Donald Westlake, they wrote about this guy named Parker. And Parker was like, you know, it's like I when I read a fictional book, um, whenever you read a fictional book in the United States, it's always there's just one little part in the book that's praising the Jew or the nigger. And it just... It, it just I can't you can't get away from it, okay? But finally, when I read these books, neither of that happened. So um, basically, this guy he was a white guy, and he was a thief. He would plan uh, bank robberies, uh, safe robberies, coin convention robberies, um, or something like that. And he would get together with a group of guys like this that were in the the syndicate. They never called it the mafia; it was the syndicate. Or uh, you know, he would get together with some old Jugger, you know, a safe cracker wasn't called a safe cracker, he was called a jugger. And um, I read that whole series of books. It was like probably uh, 17 or 18 books. And I have to say, that was probably my main source of inspiration that I got because I was like, man, this is cool. Robbing banks is cool. <laughs> you know, so it's like, I, I'm like, this is the coolest thing that I could ever do. I mean, playing guitar and everything, that's cool, but. Uh, I was like, no, this is good. this is going to be cool. So, you know, I I did it the first time. I did it by myself, and then I did it again and again and again. And it's like, if you watch the movie Heat, that was uh mm-hmm. that that's a that's a realistic movie except for that last gunfight. It's realistic as far as the portrayal of the. Uh, you mean the last uh, gunfight where Al Pacino kills him? No, not that one. Or the, gu- or the gunfight uh, where, where they get the away. bank robbery. No, the the one where they did the bank robbery in the city, where it's, it seemed like there was like 50 million cops showed up at once. That's exactly. not real. It's not realistic. Yeah. Um, it, I mean, it was a good gunfight, n- no doubt about it. I mean, and those the actors knew what they were doing. Um, but the thing is, it's not realistic. What realis- was realistic was when one of the guys, I forget his name, said, "They said, look, do you want to do this or not?" And it's like the guy's like, "I have money. I don't need the money." I don't have to do this, but the, the only reason he wanted to do it was because he was addicted to the juice. And I'm telling you what, when you walk into a bank with an AK-47 underneath a, a trench coat, 
and then you walk in there and you pull it out and you point it at people, yeah, they're just old ladies, but those old ladies have the ability to push a button under the counter and all of a sudden the SWAT team is going to be there maybe 30 seconds from then, maybe 60 seconds. It may take them longer than that because it's snowing outside and you don't know whether you're going to be in a gunfight which is going to take your life or not. Okay, So when you do that and you take the money and then you leave, I mean, for one of the banks I did up in Connecticut, it was like I was there for 73 seconds. I timed it. I walked in. I hit my, my digital watch. And then we went in there. I took 48000 We walked out. And we just drove. We drove the speed limit and got away. Wow. That right there, that right there to me feels better than having sex with the most gorgeous woman on the planet. Oh, man, you I must just have been, can't. The, the, the exhilaration must have been the, tremendous. The, the adrenaline, yeah. the adrenaline was just unbelievable. It was just like every part of my body was just like the blood was just racing through it. And, uh, you know, just for, for hours after that, you know, it's just a great feeling. We went to a hotel room and we spread all the money out on the bed and we take this little handheld black light and we're going over all the money. We must have thrown $5,000 down the toilet that was like... Uh, you know, money that had like all these ultraviolet inks on it and stamps and stuff like that. I was like, I don't want to be spending that anywhere. So we threw a bunch of money down the toilet, but we, you know, we divvied it up and then went on to the next one. You know. Well, so were yeah. you at the uh, David? Were you at the DNA when this when this uh, business blew up? Well, I was a member. Yeah. Yeah. What What went on there? What What do I think? What, I mean, what What, what I, I mean, think what was, at the I mean, time? Yeah, I mean, like, uh, you know, this, I mean, because um, we understand that Todd gave, Todd gave, unbeknownst to Dr. William Pierce, some of that money. and No, he, he did know about it. Oh, I gave okay. it to him. What he didn't know was where I got it. Oh, right. Right. And, uh, I mean, do you remember this happening, David? Yeah, well, I've read about it since then. Okay. And, um, you know, I mean, one thing that I tell people is, I don't tell anybody, you know, you get a lot of people who are always saying, stay legal, stay legal, stay legal. Yeah. And, you know, to rip off a James Mason quote from uh, the old Siege newsletter is, you know, I don't tell anybody to stay legal. I tell them stay sane and stay smart. And that's that. And, uh, you know, I, uh, I'm i not here to judge. I don't judge uh, anybody that like Todd or uh, no. anybody from the Order or anybody like that, um, you know, that's taking it to the system. I mean, because cause the, uh, the banking system is the biggest criminal enterprise in the world. Next to Absolutely. the media. Well, it's bigger than the media. I mean, yeah. It, the it drives Reserve. the media. The Federal Reserve is a... Uh, hey, you know, just speaking of the Federal Reserve really quick, not to cut you off, Todd. Hey, I went and saw a movie. It's a left-wing movie. It's called Freedom to Fascism. Anthony right. Russo put it out. Right. I went, yeah, I went, dude. I drove like six hours to go see it, um, so that I could uh, I could check it out. And it was interesting being there with all the left wingers and everything. But you know, um, the left wing uh, has raised money this way, and the right wing has raised money this way, and um, and a lot of other people have uh, large criminal enterprises in that. And um, you know, it's it's really no different other than you had an AK, than uh, Michael Milken, and uh, yeah. people like that. Uh, only 
you know, you only got forty eight thousand and Milken got forty eight billion. I mean yeah. that's that's the difference. Absolutely. Yeah, and that I tell you what, once you start to understand how the Federal Reserve operates and how taxes are taken and where they go, all the the whole idea about our votes count, that, that crap goes right oh, out. Oh, that the is a total fraud. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, not only is the voting system a fraud itself, but when you take into account that your tax money is just being lent to you in the first place, and they take it back from you, make interest on it, and then just give it back to you a little at a time, it's the the whole this whole money system is a fraud. It's a, it's an upside down pyramid, and uh, once you understand that, and then once you uh, couple the fact about the Jews using their influence in the media to make everybody think that we're all the same. Uh, Dr. Pierce called it human sameness. Then you then you start to say, well, wait a minute. The Jews are behind the Federal Reserve banking system. Uh, they're behind the credit card fraud. And also, they're bringing all these people into the United States, giving them money to have babies. Uh, we already know that when you give blacks babies or money, they don't use it to build businesses and help themselves. They they just keep on having more and more babies. But the Jews knew, know this, and they know that by us not having more babies and the non-whites having more babies than us, and them being violent at the same time and causing this whole situation where the middle class is shrinking, we're living next to the non-whites, eventually, yeah, our race is going to get bred out of existence. And they have a whole religious agenda to do exactly that then the idea of doing something illegal against the government doesn't seem so preposterous. I mean, I tell everybody, why they're like, why are you such an extremist? Well, wait a minute. We're facing extreme circumstances. So in order to counter those extreme circumstances, we have to do some things that are pretty extreme in order to even defend ourselves against those. So we can either, either live under communism or fight. That's how I look at it. Um, David, I, I'd like... Uh Again, you know, I mentioned several times, you know, how I was, I'm somewhat new to the movement, you know, in, in relative terms, and um, this is something that uh, I have heard some people I first learned about, I think, by listening to you or was it Tom Metzger, and I had seen the name before, and I had, I, I you know, it didn't recognize, it didn't register with me because I didn't know about it, and this was um, Bob Matthews, and you know, we're talking, I, I, I firmly believe uh, that. The system, you know, cannot be dealt with except in, a, in, in a, I don't, I don't believe there's a. Let me say it squarely. I don't think there's a political su- solution left for whites in America. Uh, there, it, there may be a political solution left uh, in Europe, but um, as far as using the existing system uh, and you know, democratically changing things and et cetera, it won't happen for white nationalists, in my opinion. And so we have this. Uh, I'm sure that. Uh, Bob Matthews also came to that that kind of conclusion and um, and 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 went forward from there. I mean, what do you think? What do you think the legacy is of 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 the order and Bob Matthews and what happened there, David? You know, it's interesting about the order. The book that's always uh, that they always say uh, inspired Bob Matthews was the Turner Diaries. Uh huh. It, it was actually Which Way Western Man by. Right. Yeah. Wow, Gailey Simpson! Another one, another one to read. Will, as Gailey Simpson, is, <laughs> you got to you got to pace yourself on that one. Uh-huh. But uh, um, it was the last chapter, especially um, that uh, you know that had an effect on him, because what Simpson does in his book is um, 
you know, over the course of the book, uh, he brings you along. If you weren't thinking that way already, uh, what you were just saying is that the political solution is, uh, you know, is not out there. Um, do you also believe that, David? Oh, of course I do. I okay. have for a long time. And here's, but here's the other thing that I think about that is that we owe it to our cause to uh, to organize uh, and to put as much effort as we can into um, you know other avenues so that eventually when the violence does come it's it's of such a righteous nature mm-hmm. and, and that its righteousness cannot be denied um, so that you know you've exhausted all other means and it's just like what we were talking about with uh self-defense tactics, you know, um, if you can still stand your ground and you can de-escalate a situation, then, of course, that's what you want to do. Now, that doesn't mean, uh, you know, pussing out or any kind of stuff like that uh, when it comes to defending yourself. If somebody presses the issue, well, then press the button on them. Now, uh, and make sure that it's a kill shot. So it's the same thing with the system. That, first off, um, we exhaust other me- uh, our other means. Now, see, um, that's what they're doing in Europe, I believe. Because um, I won't name anybody, but I know a lot of those uh, guys who are uh, political leaders over there. And um, I know that most of them are on the same page as we are. And that they um, know that there's only so far they can take it before the system uh, lashes out against them and zeroes in on them in ways that they have not yet. And so when that happens, then anything else that happens after that is righteous. And mm-hmm. and, and that's how you build uh, support amongst the population. Now... The things that are happening in Iraq and other places, uh, but Iraq in general, right? Now, those things could have never happened if if it wasn't for um, the invasion, the big upheaval. And so if, if we've exhausted everything and, and then it comes to a situation like, for instance, uh, you know, a Mexican secessionist uh, movement in the southwest or whatever form it takes, and whenever it takes. That's another thing I never do is I don't put timelines on things because, and, you know... Uh, We've been disappointed in the past. That's my why. God. <laughs> That's right. And, you know, even even the people who could make succinct predictions and, and, uh, and that they can never put a timeline on it. If you listen to Revelo Oliver's speeches... He goes over that in detail about all the timelines that he put on things, and they never panned out. But the situation did worsen. Dr. Pierce, in fact, at the beginning of the Turner Diaries audio discs, which, if anybody's interested in listening to him, that guy that has SolarGeneral.com, he has them all on there for free. You don't have to buy them. It's all on there for free. And so is like, you know, like a thousand or something uh, white power tunes of uh, assorted types, and even like David Allen Coe, you know, uh, um, 
uh, some of his stuff. And so, um, which I enjoy listening to. Yeah. That's <laughs> good drinking. It's good drinking music. Get all your buddies in the backyard and start singing it. I'm just saying I've memorized all the lyrics. Go ahead. So have I. <laughs> <laughs> she don't well, anyway. That's Metzger's show. He karaoke. And so uh, you know, we have to we have to exhaust some of some of these political means first, and uh, and at the same time, uh, guys like you and me or other people. I mean, I'm not really a uh, like a political figure. Uh, like Duke Esque or any kind of thing like that, I don't really have to watch what I say because uh, I'm not going to be running for office, and I'm not going to be trying to sell any uh, any books or or any kind of stuff like that. I don't have to really worry about what I say. And uh, you know what? If I did in the future, well, I'd just be like everybody else, right? <laughs> I guess, and uh, ignore those things. Yeah, but, like Arnold Schwarzenegger. You know what I'm talking about. Yeah. I did not grow up. And so, uh, you know, that's what I think. I think that, yes, it's going to come into a shooting war. All power, all political power flows through the barrel of a gun. That's a real... Mao Zedong uh, was very accurate when he made that statement. And, um, you know, that's the way it is. And that's why, first off, if you're not armed... Um, you know, it's just the regular gun lobby stuff. You know, uh, if you're not armed, you're you know slave, all that kind of stuff. Uh, right. Exercise your Second Amendment uh, before they take it away, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, you can think of all of the different cliches. And uh, it's not the Bill of Needs; it's the Bill of Rights. That's right. And so, uh, and then at the same time, um, you know, think about. Uh, there's always going to be factions in the movement. There's always going to be factions in politics in general, and that, um, and and that, actually, when the rubber does hit the road eventually, uh, you know, you need to be willing to put those factions aside, and especially if it's just something simple as branding. If it's something as simple as branding, you're a member of you know, the National Club, and this guy's a member of the, you know, Alliance Corporation, or whatever, you know, name you want to put on it, um, you know, you need to be willing to put that aside. And I'll tell you, my experience is, is that when you're around rank-and-file members of these groups, they are all like that. They all put them aside. They're not involved in all of this stuff. They may know the gossip in that, but they're not involved in the whole... Uh, I hate this guy, and I never work with him, and we can't work with Yeah, it's with only a few people that do that. It's only a few people that are, I mean, it seems like on the message boards you've got a lot of people like that, but when you're when you're actually there, you know, you're at, like at the alliance conferences or stuff like that, or somebody's speaking, it's only a few people that are starting that crap. And they usually do it behind the scenes. Well, and they usually do it for specific reasons. That's the other thing. People don't reduce. Nobody does anything in a you know in a um, uh, in a financial vacuum usually. And finances can be money, and it can be uh, you know movement power or perceived power, a mini megalomania or whatever. <laughs> you know, I, well, it I is, know. and I know exactly who you're talking about too. Yeah, that's okay. And, and so, <laughs> and so uh, I'm sure a lot of other people did too, and so. Um, you know, we have to have that stuff put aside. And uh, somebody made the uh, made the statement a long time ago. Uh, 
you know, if we were invaded by China tomorrow, uh, the Democrats and the Republicans and, and us and everybody else, um, they may, you know, uh, we may not agree with the government. We may not oppose the government, but we wouldn't start flying red flags. Right, exactly. And Maybe that's red, white, black flags, but, you know, not red flags. That's my whole point is that uh, with all these Mexicans coming in here and with the amount of non-whites that are in the United States, when when things start to, to get really nasty and white people start to see that their fellow kinsmen are being slaughtered by non-whites who you know don't even speak their own language, then all that other crap goes right out the window. And people start uniting on basic common needs. Like, look, you're white, I'm the white, uh, the electricity is off, we need to eat and we need to protect ourselves. So. Well, and I agree, you know, in, in fact, I wrote a thing about... Um, Stormbreak Loose 2005, stealing Dr. one of Dr. Pierce's titles of his ADV. And that was a post-Katrina thing. Because, you know, I noticed everybody was writing, everybody, Jared Taylor, David Duke, I mean, a everybody who's, who's a commentator and on the boards, they're all talking about monkeys swinging from trees, monkeys eating bananas, monkeys shooting at, you know, you know what I'm talking about? They're talking about right. blacks being blacks. And to me, the important thing was, and uh, you know, was how fragile the system was. Uh huh. Mm -hmm. And that's all it took to make a major urban area, which already wasn't like Shangri-La. I've been to New Orleans a number of times. Uh, it's disgusting. It, except, you know, uh, Duke made a statement to me uh, while we were driving around one day, uh, you know, because he lives over there in Mandeville, right? And David Duke and I and another guy were going out to lunch and we're driving in a suburban. And by the way, I mean, if you're driving with this dude, wear your seatbelt. He drives <laughs> it. He drives in Europe way too much. <laughs> So, like, you know, first we almost got killed by somebody who recognized him, and they said, oh, my God, that's David Duke. I could see their lips, you know, just like when you see, like, a football coach screaming on the <laughs> sideline, and you could see him, you know, cussing and stuff. I see, oh, my God, it's David Duke. And they ran the stop sign, and they almost broadsided us. And Duke, who just came back from Russia, you know, so he's used to driving around there all crazy and everything. We're in the suburban, and <laughs> He whipped around this guy really quick, and you know he never missed a beat in the conversation. <laughs> but he he was making a statement, and it played out true. And what he says is even in the even well, I'll paraphrase him because I don't want to say exactly what he said because it actually has more meaning. But he said, uh, you know, even even in a even in a uh, uh, like a you know breakdown of order, right? Mandeville was so white that it would be relatively unaffected. And you know what? He was right. Because, you yeah. know, that area right there... Uh, I, lived, I lived there for a while. Okay, so you know what I'm talking about. Yeah, I know about. exactly what you're Saint talking Bernard, about. You know, is that is that there weren't people looting. There weren't people running and shooting at, at, uh, at emergency personnel. Right. And then, you know, the police didn't have to go through and round up everybody's guns. Because there isn't a nigger in New Orleans that's going to come across Lake Pontchartrain, or that could even get across it after the storm, but that's going to come across there and try to take people because they know all those white folks have guns and that they'll shoot them. Absolutely. Yeah. You know, and and the another part of that is, um, 
you know that these people have uh, engineered this for themselves, and they don't need to all say they're white nationalists or join an organization or anything like that. When I was there, the only blacks that I saw were working there, and I didn't see any Mexicans, none. Where was this? Mandeville. Oh, yeah. I mean, I didn't see any Mexicans, and the only blacks that I saw there were working at restaurants, working at Seven. In fact, the guy I got directions to Duke's house was from a guy at a Circle K or something like that. A yeah, black Circle Duke. K, yeah. I just straight up asked the Duke. I was like, hey, man, uh, you know, uh, I'm looking for this guy's house. Maybe you can tell me he's like, a guy's house? I said, yeah, David Duke. You know what I'm talking about? He's all, oh, yeah, yeah. He's right. You know, he gave me directions exactly to the door of Duke's house. That happened to me when I was up in West Virginia trying to find the uh, National Lions headquarters. Hell yeah. I walked into this gas station out of the way, and these, I mean, these guys looked at me, and they were like, he's not a local. And I was yep. asking for directions. They were like, where are you trying to go? I said, uh, I want to I want to meet Dr. Pierce. And they are like, oh, they gave me directions. But then after that, they were like, what do you want to talk to him for? And I just left. I didn't even say anything to them. But, uh, yeah, you're right. It's uh, When it does happen, uh, whites are going to, you know, they just have a fail-safe mechanism. They're going to forget about the, you know, everything that separates us, uh, all the petty issues, and just concentrate on one thing. We have a, a crisis here, and uh, we need to do what's necessary, and that's it. Well, and see, part of the essay was that, you know, what national membership organization has a plan for if 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 something happens, how, how how you know everybody always says oh we need the leader you know we need the person the apex figure blah 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 A- except you know we've already had some really good ones and they've left us lots of great advice and they've left us good solid cadre whether people want to believe it or not you know al- almost everybody who's anybody in the right wing has has uh, is a protege of William Pierce in some fashion or or the other. Or in, as uh, you know, uh, a protege of somebody like Dr. Wesley Swift, or a Christian identity guy like that on either side of the fence. And so, um, first off, we've got a great wealth of people like that who have been mentored by these guys. And secondly, we need to have an ideology that's that's uh, developed enough so that when yeah. things do happen, you don't need. To hear from that guy, you don't need to have some kind of speech from the mountain every week. You already know what needs to be done. You already know who you are, and you already know the people that you need to recruit. And those are, you know, I go and make friends in my block, so that I, because it's a, it's going to be a three-block war, just like Fallujah. I mean, pretty pretty close to that. Uh, these people are going to come in and try to take our lunch money. We're going to try to protect it. You know, the government may come in if we get too powerful, and obviously from events that we've watched over the last couple of years, the strongest military in the world, yeah. uh, you know, hey, if you're a local, forget about it. I mean, I, I'm an anti-tank guy. I've been telling people for years, you don't need missiles to take out tanks, and that's what Hezbollah did, you know, just by digging ditches and sending them down the hills, uh, you know, crashing down the roads. I mean, do, so, I mean just, just to speak about it, a contemporary event. I mean, just think what's going to happen in the consciousness of the whole world and and of everyone when we finally are defeated in Iraq. I mean, formally we're defeated now. We just haven't yeah, left. I was just going to say. And yeah, uh, we just yeah, pulled out yet. yeah. And when 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 
when everyone understands clearly that we have been beaten, yeah, and uh, you know, there's going to be a lot. What I fear is that the well, which is a blessing too, is that the the Mexicans, the irredentists in this country, the Mexican irredentists, will say, "Hey, look, we can finish them off here now." Well, and and hopefully, if that happens, I mean, people remember that, you know. You don't need to go out and find these people. They live right around you. Yeah. You know, it saves you a lot of time. It's just like, you know, uh, Hassan Nasrallah, the uh, uh, the commander, well, the head of Hezbollah. Yeah. Right? He has a couple of great quotes, uh, which is, one, let the Jews gather in Israel, because then we don't have to scour the world looking for them. <laughs> <laughs> right. And, and, and that's the same thing with uh, you know with Mexicans or people who are invading our country. Is pretty much they're going to be in the you know you know where they're going to be. They're going to be in agricultural communities. They're going to be in the cities, and so they're going to be really easy to root out. And they're easier and, to spot than Jews are. And they're a lot easier to spot than Jews are. You're darn right. I mean, but just just think of what that's going to do to the political consciousness of you know of all kinds of people. Uh, you know. People who are our foes, people who I mean, it's already happening in Latin America. These these Latin Americans, uh, you know, these these mestizo and Indian types down there, American Indian, they are really feeling their oats, and they're they're really exercising their power, and uh, and they're they're putting people like you know this uh, Chavez and and Evo Morales, and they're putting them in power, and uh, they're surging, and you can just imagine. What glee they must feel seeing the American army get its ass kicked in well, Iraq, and, and they have uh, you know they have leverage against us. Um, I mean, Venezuela is an OPEC country, yeah, and these guys are driven by a militant ideology, which is Bolivarianism. Yep, uh, and um, and you know they they also have co opted. Um, some of the um, premier American left-wing anti-imperialist types, like Noam Chomsky. Mm-hmm. In fact, I mean, uh, yeah, you Chavez, saw a clip. You saw a clip of uh, Chavez during his speech. He was holding up a book written by Noam Chomsky. He quotes him extensively. I mean, Chavez gives out these like four-hour speeches, kind of like Fidel Castro does, mm-hmm. and uh, and he quotes uh, Chomsky at length. I was telling somebody who's a uh, who's an avid like you know neocon right winger that you know the Bolivarians were big on Chomsky and the guy thought I was you know and he's actually an academic he should have known better but he uh, he disagreed with me just because he didn't know what he was talking about and then called me to apologize uh, after the UN speech. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we was waving around that book. Did I tell? You know, uh, I said this on Whitewire. This is so weird. I was in New York City uh, the week before that, or, you know, like uh, two days before uh, uh, Ahmad Benajad Benajad, uh, came in. And uh, the limo company that I use was owned by an Iranian Arab. Yeah, I heard that. that. Yeah, that guy was driving me. And and then he was going to pick up, uh, you know, Ahmadinejad. And, you know, that that guy's an interesting guy, too. He's a doctor, but if you notice, he never wears a tie. No, they don't. They don't in Iran. Well, I mean, yeah, he's making an open-collar, working-class statement. I mean, he wears, like, he uh, uh, he doesn't always wear, like, blazers and stuff. He wears, like, you know, zip-up 
uh, I don't know what kind of code it would be, but uh, as some, I just appreciate it as somebody who's been hammered for dressing like a working class guy, because I am, uh, by like the Southern Poverty Law Center and people like that, making fun of wearing flannel shirts or, mm-hmm. you know, not fitting into the uh, into the movement intelligentsia, uh, uh, being a square peg in their round hole, I guess. Yeah, we can sure learn something. You know, uh, you know, we, we talked earlier about how this movement is kind of in the wilderness right now, and uh, after you know the demise of the National Alliance, and you know, we can sure surely take a few notes uh, from uh, from uh, what's happened in the Middle East with those organizations, and uh, they're doing something right. Well, and here's one of the things that I think is is uh, extremely important that um, you get a lot of people. The situation is dire. Okay, uh, tomorrow I guess we're hitting 300 million people in America. Yeah, I, I got that beamed to my BlackBerry earlier. Okay, well that's that's fine. Um, but w- we get people when they, when they come in because the 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 rhetoric and the statistics and everything when we're bringing people in, um, you know, paint the situation as a dire, uh, you know, last stand kind of like a camp of the saints kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, but we have time to organize properly. And a lot of people have been hurried and um, and not understood that, first off, we need to be in it for the long haul. The long haul. Generational. Twenty, thirty, fifty years. Mm-hmm. These guys, the jihadi movement, um, or even the Baathist movement that brought Hussein into power and uh, and the guys into power in Syria, um, that was over a long period of time too. I mean, Hussein just didn't like one day decide he was going to be the dictator of Iraq. Uh, you know, I mean, he made a statement in court. Uh, that he's been sentenced to death three times and it's never been carried out. (laughs) Well, I mean, it's the truth. It uh, is. These guys, uh, you know, uh, Bin Laden uh, and uh, al-Zawari on the um, Salafist side, the Wahhabists, Mm -hmm. or or, uh, Nasrallah, the Ayatollah, uh, Ahmadinejad, on the uh, Shiite side, on the Shia side, um, either one of the these guys, they they've all, and I'm not talking just religiously because most of these guys are, uh, you know, geopolitical in their outlook. Sure, they are. Uh, Al Qaeda is a geopolitical organization. It's not a religious group. And any expert that you talk to, or you read about, you read their books, like Inside Al Qaeda by uh, Goon Rotman, I think his name is. Uh, uh, he's a Pakistani guy. You could hardly say their names. Um, he makes that point. Um, you know, the book Al Qaeda in Europe, uh, Peter Bergen, all those guys who are you know set up as uh, terrorism experts. Hey, uh, one of our guys, Dr. James Sanchez, same thing. These guys are geopolitical in their outlook, um, but they are religious. They have spent uh, decades. Um, building their infrastructure, honing their ideology, all of that kind of stuff. And so a lot of times uh, people in the right, in the racialist right, uh, or the white wing, uh, uh, I've used and other people have, they need to understand that uh, we have to be willing to put in that kind of work 
and the, to build up our organization and to build up our personalities and to hone the, these ideologies and apply them to everything, which is good. That's one of the things local politics is good for. Yeah. Uh, is that you can show people the practical application of, of your ideology. Because, you know, uh, one of my political science professors, and, and here's the other thing, and I think this is the big one. Rule number one in politics is that you can't replace something with nothing. And so unless we articulate exactly what we intend to do, how we intend to do it, and what the outcome is over and over and over again, like conditioning by repetitive association, then people aren't going to understand it. Yeah. And, and the media is going to be able to say, well, what are you going to do with that? Uh, you know, how do you intend to stop the immigration problem? What would you do? Um you know, so you can't replace something with nothing. And that's the way a lot of these organizations are in the flux right now, too. Uh, you know, the other organizations that popped up with no infrastructure, no nothing, uh, just a membership list, you can't replace something with nothing. And that's why a lot of people just decided to stay on something, which was the boards mm -hmm. and, uh, and listening to these shows and things like that, instead of just uh, automatically joining some other organization that had you know, a new dues brother at the at the apex. Yeah. yeah. I think that's why Dr. Pierce was so successful with that. He said, look, really a lot of people blame Dr. Pierce for not being, you know, one of these people that was the ultimate leader. And he even said, he says, look, I'm not here to, you know, this is not a, the National Alliance was not a political organization. It was just a, an organization by which people could have the means to get together like-minded individuals, educate themselves by way of reading the books that were available in the National Vanguard Catalog, and then by their own initiative, do something positive for the white race. Pierce didn't care what that was, but he said, look, we need to do something because of what's going on here, what's going on there, what's happening to us. These are the things that are happening to us. The Jews aren't telling you. I am. So let's organize and do something positive about it. And a lot of positive changes, you know, uh, were made, and people got organized and you know met each other. But um, still, I think uh, the membership handbook uh, was a shining example of, you know, if shit does hit the fan, how people can organize, organize, what kind of people uh, we're looking for, who should be leaders, who shouldn't, you know, and. Um, I forgot to ask you at the beginning. I was looking at the Nat Van webpage, and you said it was the Michigan website that had the, the PDF membership handbook. They used to. They used to. Does it, is it anywhere on the web right now at all? No, I've got it. I can email it to you. Or if you uh, can. I would love that. I, I could probably I could probably pop it on Whitewire as a download. That would be awesome because I, I don't have it. It was one of those things that disappeared in my. Uh, when the feds raided my storage. I'm sure it did. Was yeah, it a paper? Did you have a nice paper it's just copy? A, it's, a, it's a paperback yeah. copy. It's about 130, 140 pages. But to me, it's after you read the membership handbook that Dr. Pierce wrote, it, it's, it was more influential than even the Turner Diaries and Hunter. It was just for sure, absolutely incredible book. How much time did either of you gentlemen get to spend with Pierce? Uh, I only met him. I was talked to him for about forty-five minutes, and that was that. Wow! Oh, I spent some pretty good time around him. Uh, 
at the different leadership conferences, and you know, he made me a unit coordinator for Anchorage. Mm-hmm. And um, so, I mean, I wasn't up there like spending weeks with him or anything, but uh, I had had uh, exposure to him over the years. Do you think? Do you think that uh, uh, Robert Griffith? Um, I'm, I'm getting the name right. Um, Griffin. Griffin, yeah, fame of a dead man's team. Do you think he did a pretty fair treatment with him? Well, considering that he was a member of the NA, uh, I think so. Yeah. And, and, you know, he didn't start out like that. Dr. Pierce recruited him. Mm-hmm. Well, I, I've right. read the book, and, and I, I enjoyed it immensely. Yeah, I, I think that that's an extremely accurate portrayal of Dr. Pierce. Because it, it's a portrait, number one, right? And number two... It just paints him as himself. Mm-hmm. You know, you could always tell how mad he was. This is by by how far, how many seconds there were in between uh, him stringing "God" and "Damn it" when he was mad. You know, and at the same time, he had this laugh that was unbelievable. <laughs> I mean, and um, right after he died, I was up there on the property. And I stayed in his house. Um, I mean, you know, I think he died in there like two days before. So, uh, um, you know, I was there sleeping on the couch. And for gun people, let me tell you something. He had an arms room, like literally, an arms room (laughs) in his house. There were were like 20 different, you know, uh, rifles, M1, like, you know, like an M1A1. Uh, M1 Grand, uh, you know, uh, he had an AK-47, uh, he had a, um, oh, crud, uh, whatever the Chinese version was. SKS. No, no, not an SKS. It was a, um. A Brinko. Yeah, like a, well, like an AKMS, you know. Okay, yeah. Um, he had like a, you know, AR-15, AR-15 bullpup. His 45, his Glock 45 that he carried all the time, a variety of other pistols, shotguns, Spaz 12, that was the one. I'd never shot a Spaz 12. I shot every damn gun that he had while I was up there. Wow. I, just wa- I walked out on his porch because they were all loaded. Every single one had a round in the chamber pointed at the ground. Wow. So you could just, like, continually grab them. <laughs> right? <laughs> and so... You know, and then he had food in there. He had gas mask. He had night vision. I mean, huh. you know, he what wasn't playing all that stuff. Was it just? Uh, it was, was just acquired uh, by the new membership. Leaders? No, no, no. Um, they uh, they divided it up between uh, some of his old friends, a couple of people who had given him guns, asked if they could have them back. Um, his sons, uh, one of his sons, uh, they gave him a couple of his dad's guns some other things. They told him, you know, anything you want here you can have. And so he picked out a couple of things that he wanted. And um, and then the rest of them uh, over time were pilfered. Um, so, you know. Absolutely, he died too young. In my oh, he opinion. did. I mean, he's as old as my dad. He would be as old as my dad right now. And I, can't I will even never forget the, the day when uh, a friend of mine called and said, Dr. Pierce just died, and I was driving down the road. I was like talking on this. They, they called me on my cell phone. They told me I was like, "No, that's not true." I, and I pulled over and I said, 
I pulled over to the side of the road and I said, where did you hear this? And she was like, it's on the news. I'm watching it right now on the news. I was like, no, they're wrong. He must be sick, maybe admitted to the hospital, but he's not dead. It's just too much. He, he, he was real healthy. I mean, you know, just, I mean, he was like, he was strong as an ox, you know, get up every day, work 10 hours a day, and then, you know. Yeah, you know, my best friend, he, he called my best friend when he found out uh, the cancer that he had because he's a doctor. Right. So my friend flew down there to be with him. He was actually there with him when he died. Um, still won't talk about it all the way. Uh, and so um, my friend actually uh, didn't tell me about that Dr. Pierce was dying. A staff member called me up to feel me out right uh, to see who should be in charge and stuff and um you know i knew it was going to be jockeying for position and stuff um i could tell right then how things were going to shape up and honestly i gotta tell you you know i mean chalk it up to naivete or whatever but uh after the first little schism there uh, and, and we seemed to overcome that uh I honestly thought that, you know, we were going to be okay, and not just because, I mean, I realized that the guy at the top had some limitations, um, and, you know, I just figured that I could work around him, uh, at least, because uh, he was kind of distracted, I mean, he wasn't really plugged in, and that I could just, uh, you know, go organize and do my thing and have these meetings, and, you know, every meeting that we had, we had more people there than the last one. It wasn't yeah. like we had yeah. any, like, you know, where nobody showed up. Uh, uh, I, I even went to one in Arizona where they just had some big thing down there, and, uh, you know, I'll tell you, his ADV broadcasts were a huge focal point, and huge, they were. Uh, to, to get people motivated and to bring them to the local meetings, it was the ADV broadcasts. I mean, I used to go out and fly our neighborhoods and get people to listen to the AM stations, and we'd get kicked off one AM station, and then we'd try to find another one, and, okay, so we're only on shortwave right now. And let me tell you about back in uh, 1997, 96, 97, that was quite an adventure to, you know, find someone to, to take his uh, broadcasts. And, uh, you know, I'd tell people, you know, go out and listen to this. It was every Saturday morning at 11.30, you need to hear this. Unbelievable. I mean, Jeff, I don't know if you've heard some of the ADV broadcasts that he's done, but if you can get, like, uh, the ones like playing cards on a sinking ship or the crying oh, game. Yeah. Or, uh, I've heard it all. I think I've heard every one of them. Yeah, and okay. uh, I, I download them Because that's, that's the way I recommend people that want to listen to them, that they just go through and listen to every single one. Start yeah, with our, Start with Our Cause and just listen to every single yeah, one. Yeah, absolutely. Our Cause from 1976, it's, it's amazing. You know, I, I like them so much, and, I, and, I've, and I've, I've put this on the forum, and I've talked about it in Free Talk Live and other programs. Uh, what I do is uh, I, I like them. I like Killing Caitlin. And um, I like uh, the Mestizo Menace and putting it all together or something like that is one of the last ones. And I'll, I burn those on CDs. I still do this occasionally. And uh, when there's a, a blue-collar workman, you know, coming in the neighborhood, a plumber or, uh, you know, uh, some, some, you know, whatever, handyman, uh, I go chat him up. 
and then you know kind of sense where he's coming from and you know maybe get him talking about the illegal immigration issue and how it's hurting his work and uh i give him one of pierce's uh uh cds yeah i do that it's very very motivating it gets people to yeah even people that are not racialist people that are like that are afraid to say that they're racist. You throw them one of those, like uh, the the my favorite one, I guess, is non-white immigration because I like the ADVs where Pierce gets really into a roaring. It's got to be something done about this now, you know. Yeah. <laughs> and it's just it just makes your blood boil, you know. And it's like, yeah, he's yeah. right. <laughs> so uh, those are the ones that I like the best. And uh, like in the crying game when he was talking about how Canadian, how the uh, the laws in Canada are so ridiculous and that's what's going to happen here right here in America because you've got some some loons in the United States that are just like the ones in Canada and within a decade our laws here in the United States are going to be just like the ones in Canada and you know here we have HR 6166 and I, I think that's even more eliminating habeas corpus and the fourth amendment is even more than maybe even Pierce could have imagined so but he was right and something he said something needs to done, be done about it. Nothing was done about it. So here we are. The House and the Senate have approved the Military Commissions Act of 2006, and now we're waiting for Bush to sign it. Here we are, uh, what, 22 days away from the elections, and he hasn't signed it, and we don't know why. I'm expecting a false flag operation so that he can sign it and go, okay, now you're all enemy combatants because... We want to protect you. And uh, that's just as loony as, as what Pierce was talking about. No one no one paid attention. He's just like, well, this is just a, a white racialist guy that's getting excited just because he's becoming an alarmist. And he wasn't an alarmist. He was looking at the political trends and saying, look, something nutty is going to happen. They're going to change the laws and make it impossible for you to use your free speech. And that's exactly what HR six one six six about is about. Well, and if you want to get a, you know, uh, if you do a search on there, you listen to Why War, where he lays out exactly what's happening in Iraq, like exactly what's right. happening in Iraq, and then even following events like nine eleven, which by the way happened on his birthday. Absolutely. Um, <laughs> you know, he he does the reshuffling of the deck, ADV. Uh, where he'd sat and he digested it and he could see what was happening. Um, yeah, I mean, his ADVs are are priceless. And, yeah, and we absolutely. all own them because they're out on the Internet for free. And then they will always be trips. timely. They'll always be timely. Mm-hmm. Well, absolutely. Yeah, I suggest everyone listen to them. On that note, let's call it a night. And, yeah. uh, and uh, once again, we've done three hours with David Pringle and, and Todd came on during the second hour. And uh, it's all going to be archived, and I'd like to, once again, uh, thanks, David, and, and good luck. We didn't really get too much chance to talk about what happened with your uh, with your employer, but that's okay. And, uh, I, you know, that's it's, it's, uh, we, pre- we kind of touched in that area, and, um, and uh, you know, we all wish you the best of luck. And, and we'll, keep, we'll keep visiting White Will anyway, White Wire, to see if anything happens there. Yeah, well, I'm, I'm looking for somebody right now to... Uh you know, to help me out with it, mm-hmm. and uh, and everything will be back in a little bit. Well, good. So it's not like uh, oh, quitting the movement or anything like that. All, all I told the uh, SLB was maybe he's listening because he knows he's a son of a bitch. 
uh, was that I, I would quit the show and I would quit posting on the site. And all it had to do was with an account that I service, which is like the biggest account that the company's got, and it would put a serious dent in the Pringle household income. Sure. Uh, you know, uh, they were trying to nip it in the bud before it became a problem. And that's fine. Um, because, you know, I'm not going to be working for these people forever. And, uh, and my situation changes all the time. So, Okay. Well, all right. Let's say good night. Hey, you know, can I tell what, you? Please do. Everybody, I'll leave... You know what? Don't be a harbinger of doom. Be a spark of revolution. Yes, absolutely. That's good advice. <laughs> All right. So, hey, thanks for having me. Oh, it's been my pleasure. I, I, I really feel fortunate. Yeah, thank you, David, for coming on. We appreciate yeah, it. Good talk to you, Todd. All right. All right. Good Take night, care, folks. Now.